You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Gershom Gorenberg. Uh, Gershom, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Gershom Gorenberg. I'm a historian and journalist living in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm the author of four books, the latest of which is War of Shadows. War of Shadows, I'm holding it up to the camera right now. Um, subtitle, Codebreaker Spies and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East. Um, the book came out earlier this year, and um, thank you for coming on to talk about it. It's it's a story, I mean, it's it's hard to describe this this book. It's It's comprehensive, it's a story I knew very little about, and probably most Americans know very little about. So it's, you know, I actually was mentioning to a couple of people this, um, when I was reading this book and they're like, what's it about? I was like, well, it's about World War II in the uh, Northern Africa and, and Middle East. And more than one person said, oh, like, um, like the English patient. And I said, well, you know, the, the actual guy is, is one of the people <laughs> in here. Uh, but there's, there's a cast of characters and you have a, you, that... I mean, you have eight pages. You have a cast of characters thing at the very beginning, sort of like dramatis personae, and it goes for eight pages. So there's a, this is a huge, a huge work. It's it's a quite an accomplishment. I mean, how would what would you say is sort of the one paragraph summary of this work, if that's possible? Uh, the the very brief version is that the Axis, led by Nazi general uh, German general Erwin Rommel came within a millimeter of conquering all of the Middle East in 1942. Uh, that's a front which is almost completely unfamiliar to American readers. Um, and the key to Rommel's advance and the key to his defeat was intelligence, breaking of codes. Um, and the information on that remained secret for decades. What I've done in this book is to put together that story of how the battle for the Middle East went, and particularly how the outcome was determined by the work of codebreakers and spies. Um, um, it could have very, very easily gone the other way. Yes, and you, in a way I, I didn't understand before reading the, the book, you kind of see possible alternate disastrous histories for um, for the world that, that could have possibly happened or what the um, Axis powers intended for the Middle East. And um, yeah, so it's fascinating. And so you have, like I said, there's, you know, lots of characters. The chapters take place on, you know, at least three continents. I guess you have, you, you talk about, <laughs> uh, you know, Japan also. So I guess that'd be four. And um or, no, I guess, well, is Israel, I guess Israel counts as part of Asia. So multiple continents, um, multiple, yeah, so many characters. And you, you know, uh, you're, uh, you have did a lot of uh, primary source, original research and document archives. How, so how did just like, how did you put this together? Because you have, you're reading sources it, uh, from British intelligence, American intelligence, <laughs> the German, German documents, Italian documents, uh, Arab documents, I assume. How did you even like, Hebrew Get documents all, as well. Yes, Hebrew and <laughs> uh, Hungarian. I, I, Hungarian and Polish uh, characters play major roles as well. How did like you get your hands around all this? Uh, it was 
um, putting together a 50,000 word jigsaw puzzle, a 50,000 piece jigsaw puzzle, except unlike a jigsaw puzzle, in this case, the pieces were mixed in with the pieces of other puzzles. So the first part is finding the pieces that belong to your puzzle and then and then fitting them together. Uh, the pieces were scattered between <clears throat> archives from here in Jerusalem all the way to California with many, many places in between, particularly large amount of material in British archives. But besides that, also key material that never made it to the archives, that was still hiding in the attics or cupboards of key characters who I traced down in order to uh, to tell the story. So I constantly was keeping track of the development of, of each of these pieces of the story. And the best days in this long hunt were when a document showed up that, you know, took the whole story and went like this changed what I thought had happened. And that also happened over and over again. Um, there were days when I was, you know, sitting in the British National Archive in, in London and I'd suddenly see something and I wanted to get up and scream, yes! <laughs> well, you don't do that in an archive. You don't do that in a British archive. Yeah, that would be frowned upon. <laughs> so I would take a little picture of it and send a note to my wife and kids and say, look what I found today instead. Um, so it was a constant process of putting together those pieces. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at, you're providing sort of, I guess, maybe a revisionist history of some major historical figures like um, Rommel, the, the German general, who, you know, one of the few people I had heard of or knew anything about before reading this. And then you are bringing sort of obscure, semi-obscure characters, historical characters like uh, this man, uh, Bonner Fellers, who I, we'll talk a little bit about. And also, but also, I think you are digging out people from the archives who the historical record has never identified before in any way, like um, um, Margaret Story, a, a woman who worked at Fletchy Park, the the, the uh, co-breaking HQ in, in Britain. And I think, are you the first person to recognize her historical I, I, contribution? I believe way? so. I, the, the whole time I was working on this, I, I knew that, um, just to, to put this in context, um, I knew that I was working on a spy story, and I was knew that I was, in effect, also the detective in a detective story. I was trying to trace down who was the culprit and who discovered the culprit. In this case, a the, the British uh, uh, codebreakers in April of 1942, discovered by breaking into uh, German radio networks that the Axis had an astoundingly high-level source in Cairo who was feeding Rommel the most essential secrets about British plans, supplies, um, positions, and then they had to find out who the source was. And I wanted to find out also who found it out? Who was the person at Bletchley Park who was responsible for, for figuring this out? And in the course of my work, first I discovered a man named Russell Dudley Smith, who was in charge of the security of Allied of British and American codes. And then one day, looking through a handwritten set of notes in the British archive, I discovered that there was this woman named Margaret Story, whose job it was 
she was a young woman who uh, who was recruited by Bletchley Park um, in her early 20s um, and proved to be absolutely brilliant and was given the job of going through decoded German messages to look for signs of Axis intelligence, to look for the echoes in German messages of British and American information. And that was one of the days when I discovered her, that was one of the days that I wanted to get up and shout. I mean, here is this completely unknown woman, totally forgotten by history, who played an absolutely crucial role at the critical moment that determined the outcome of the war in the Middle East and obviously had an effect on the war as a whole. So following that lead, I managed to find the reports that she wrote in which she was analyzing these, um, these German messages and trying to figure out who, who was giving the Germans this information. I also went over those messages with somebody who has um, modern day experience with intelligence analysis to get a sense of how you would do this, to reconstruct Margaret's stories uh, work. Um, and that was amazingly exciting. But there was a problem because there was very, very little information in the archives that told anything about who Margaret's story was. Uh, so then I went on a search for Margaret's story. And uh, I guessed that she continued to work for the agency after the war. The agency moved to a certain small town in in Britain, I contacted the local historical society there. They ran an ad that said that I wrote that said, you know, anybody who knew Margaret's story, please get in touch with me. And the volunteer at the historical society also found her will for me, her last will and testament, because there's a national registry of wills in Britain, which gave me the name of her heirs because she died uh, childless. So I had to find out. I mean, that told me people who was pretty likely knew her. So I managed to find four or five people in um, in different places who had known her, and they constructed a picture for me of who she was. By the way, those people had no idea that she played this role. And even after the book came out, I got a email from a cousin of hers, now living in Australia, and said, I'm gobsmacked. We had no idea that this quiet, woman who sometimes showed up at family gatherings played this role in history. So I, I admit, I felt really, really good about taking this anonymous hero out of obscurity and giving her her place in, in, uh, in the history of World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you identify a couple, there's a couple people like that who had played these decisive turning point kind of roles and yeah, either, you know, they never, um, they were forgotten by history or they, um, for various reasons, the, um, the official story sort of played, played down their role. Uh, and maybe we can get into why that would be after the end of the war. And so I'm trying to think, like, I was thinking about this conversation, how to sort of organize it. Would you say there's like, is there a protagonist to this book or a main character or sort of a anti-protagonist? Well, the protagonist is, this is what's known in, um, in film jargon as an ensemble story. Right. That is to say, instead of there being one protagonist, there is a small group of, of protagonists. The, the, the real protagonists for me of the, of the central story 
are the code breakers at Bletchley Park. And if I have to boil that group down further, actually the code breakers, because there was one member of that tiny ensemble who wasn't at Bletchley Park. That was a Polish code breaker named Marian Ryuski, who was the original person who, who within a, uh, in a feat of absolute mathematical genius, originally broke the Enigma code in the early 1930s and passed on his information to the British shortly before the war began. And then there were several figures at Lexley Park who continued that code breaking. One of them, of course, is famous now as Alan Turing, but was right. completely unknown for many years after the war. Another one who has remained, unfortunately, unknown was Turing's uh, possibly main partner, main M. Gordon Welchman. And they did the work of day by day breaking the Germans' supposedly unbreakable Enigma code. Um, and it wasn't a one-time thing. It's not like you broke the code book and then you could read it. It had the work had to be done day after day after day. Uh, and then I would say that the, the final two outstanding figures in this ensemble are the two people who once it was discovered that the Germans had the source, had to figure out who the source was. And those people were Russell Dudley Smith and Margaret Story, who were even more forgotten by history than, than, than the code breakers. The antagonists here include Rommel, a figure who has been given much too much glory uh, in history. Uh, yes, the myth of Rommel deserves to be taken apart. The, uh, both the myth of military genius and even more so the myth of the good German. Um, and it also, the antagonist ensemble also includes <clears throat> a figure in Axis Intelligence, who I won't say more about because I don't want to destroy the reading experience for anybody, but there was a um, an Axis Intelligence figure who may have been the most successful secret agent of the war, uh, who was responsible for acquiring this source in Cairo. Right. And if I, I think I know who you're talking about it, but yeah, okay, sorry, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll reveal that because I was, you know, this is sort of a, there are twists and turns in this book, but uh, I think if we're talking about the same person, I, I Googled this person's name, this person doesn't even have an English Wikipedia page, it was an Italian Wikipedia page, and, um, and that was it. But this, yeah, this certainly seems like another key player in World War II who, whose role um, is essentially unknown uh, to, to the, you know, any, to experts or not experts alike. Um, but then, okay. So, but also part of this whole, I mean, what's interesting about this to me is like, and I think I read a, a interview with you um, prepping for this, that you discussed this, like from the American point of view, the early, the part of the, of the war that took place in Northern Africa and the Middle East is sort of a footnote or not, I, I don't know, a, a pre prelude to the things we were, in the American memory, which is like D-Day and, you know, the campaign in the Pacific and like Band of Brothers and the, the sequel. As my, book editor put it, as my book editor put it when he when he read the manuscript, in American memory, the war goes Pearl Harbor, D-Day, we won. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so, okay. And that leaves out the fact that for three years of the war, the main front between the Western Allies and the Italians and Germans was in North Africa. Yeah. And, 
Okay, so so part of that is again, this is you know, and also I think in the American memory, it's thought of as the, a war in which the Allies are fighting the Axis powers of Germany and Japan, and then there's also Italy, which is also sort of at least in like popular understanding, sort of a semi footnote. Of course, we all know Mussolini, but um, the fact that uh, the fascist Italy wanted to reconstitute a like modern Roman Empire. And that entailed controlling, you know, nor- northern Africa and the Middle East. I, that, that's something I guess I, I don't know if I've ever like really heard that so explicitly. So you talk a little bit about sort of like yeah the prelude to this stuff and why yeah the the, the how Italy Italy's colonial efforts sort of set the stage for what happened during the war. Yeah, and I'll do that with a with a sort of physical picture because one of the Another one of the truly exciting days in this process was I spent time in Rome because I wanted to see the scenery where where uh, certain access intelligence people were were working and where Mussolini was. And a wonderful historian of the fascist period took me for a walking tour around key parts of the city. And he took me to the square that Mussolini's balcony overlooks. Mussolini would stand out on this balcony and give his speeches to a entirely unspontaneous crowd, you know, the people who were ardent to come there and cheer for him. Um, and he explained the way that the square had been created as a fascist backdrop, because not only Mussolini spoke from a palace, which had once been the Venetian uh, embassy to the Vatican. So that's Venice that was the great power of, of the Mediterranean in, in the Middle Ages. Um, it faced the Italian tomb of the unknown soldier and a statue of the, uh, of the first king of United Italy. So that's Italy rising again. And then they smashed an avenue through the city so that from that square, you could look directly to the Roman Colosseum. So that when Mussolini gave his speeches, you could turn and look at the Colosseum, and that's the glory of ancient Rome. And that is the myth, the mythical power that Mussolini was attempting to create for his regime, that that he was rebuilding the glory of, of ancient Rome. And that meant that the goal was to create a new Roman Empire that would control the Balkans, North Africa, and the Middle East. Uh and that's also what was behind his invasion of Greece um, and the goal of uh, taking control of, of Croatia and, and the fact that almost immediately upon joining the war in June of 1940, he ordered the invasion of Egypt from the then Italian colony of Libya setting off this massive struggle for control of Africa uh, that went on for three, for three years. So there's, so there's both a sort of, yeah, the, the fascist mythology and ideology compelled, um, you know, Mussolini and the Italians to want to hold this territory and, you know, settle, you know, settle colonists there and I guess, yeah, so it's sort of like expand Italian civilization. Uh, but also maybe like there's also the geographical and strategic 
part of part of um, why it was important to hold these various places and maybe to Hitler that mattered more than the glory of, you know, Italian civilization. Well, look, uh, that meant, for instance, conquering the Suez Canal. That meant essentially smashing the keystone of the arch of the of the British Empire. The British Empire, you know, the, the core of the British Empire stretched from Britain through Africa to India. And the keystone of that empire, uh, even after Egypt's nominal independence, was Egypt. Uh, and Britain then controlled Palestine next to it. That was, by controlling that, they controlled the Suez Canal, which was the route to, to India. It was the route to Iraq where there were oil fields. Uh, nobody knew then that there was oil in Libya, but they certainly knew that there was oil in Iraq and, uh, and Persia, as, as Iran was then called in the West. Uh, so conquering that territory was a key to resources, um, to control of the Suez Canal, and therefore breaking uh, potentially the British hold on India as well. And there was the hope on the Axis side that by conquering the Middle East and, and reaching the Indian Ocean, they could actually link up with the Japanese via the Indian Ocean. Because... Unlike the Allies, where there was constant uh, contact between the Americans and, and the British and exchange of resources, the Germans and Italians never had that kind of connection with Japan. They coordinated strategy to a certain extent, but they, you know, uh, oil from, from what was then the Dutch East Indies, today Indonesia, that was controlled by Japan, couldn't reach German tanks. For instance, so the hope was the the Axis hope was to to break through in the Middle East and create this uh, Axis connection all the way across the old world, which was fortunately foiled just barely in the final battles for Egypt. Right. Okay. So so at the outbreak of the war, Egypt is what what is it? Yeah. What is the status of Egypt in relation to the British? It's sort of. It's not like a formal well, colony. It's sort of a protectorate or something along those lines. It had been um, a British protectorate officially until the 20s when it nominally received independence. And then there was a treaty between Britain and Egypt in 1936 that it supposedly expanded uh, uh, Egyptian in, in independence. But the power behind the throne constantly in Egypt, remained Britain. British influence was uh, ubiquitous in, in Egypt, um, and there was a mutual defense pact between Egypt and Britain. Um, and, you know, the British security services operated there, and the British considered it uh, very clearly part of their sphere of influence and a critical piece of territory to preserve. And, and just how critical is shown by a decision that was made by Churchill, by Winston Churchill in the summer of 1940. Now, remember, we're talking summer of 1940. The Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, is pounding British cities and Royal Air Force bases in preparation for the expected German invasion of Britain. Britain stands alone in, in Europe against this uh, immense German power. And nonetheless, in the midst of this situation, 
Churchill decided that reinforcements had to be sent to Egypt to hold on to Egypt in the face of the Italian invasion. That's how important Egypt was to Britain strategically. And so, yeah, so Cairo, you just talk about Cairo a lot. Cairo sounds like a very interesting cosmopolitan place um, during this era. And there's various intrigues happening there. And so Egypt was ostensibly under the control of the King Farouk. Is that, was that his name? Who, King talk, Farouk, yeah. So, and an interesting character, again, someone I, you know, maybe I'd heard of the name, but knew essentially nothing about. And, um, and so, yeah, can you talk a little bit about him and why he was sort of, uh, I guess he, he had ties to Italy or maybe he was educated in Italy or something like that. So it wasn't, even though he was ostensibly an ally of the British, he was sort of, you know, not, you know, there was some, there were a lot of resentments also in the, in the country because they didn't like, not everyone liked their colonial overseers. And so his, and he was like this playboy, larger than life sort of guy. Uh, large is a good description of him, <laughs> uh, even physically. Farouk uh, gained the throne of Egypt at the age of 16. His father, King Fuad, who was the first king of newly uh, re-independent Egypt, the modern independent Egypt, had spent years in exile in, in Italy uh, before returning to, to Egypt. So it, Farouk grew up with this Italian connection and also with an immense resentment of the British because he wanted to be the power in, in Egypt and, and the British presence got in his way, uh, you know, was constantly hanging over him. He, he was brought up as a completely spoiled kid. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, his dad bought his first car for him to drive around the palace uh, lands when he was 11 years old. When he took exams, he was given the answers in advance. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, 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 he was an example of the nightmare of getting everything you want and therefore having, never having the ability to get anything at all, um, much of which came out in his extravagant lifestyle, his philandering, his gambling, his refusal to leave the gambling table until the other people lost to him. Uh, but running through this, this bizarre character is the constant theme of, of tension with the British. He also had a great amount of tension with the major elected political fixture, uh, politician in Egypt, who was also very anti-British, but made the wise choice at the beginning of the war that the Axis was a greater danger than the British were. First, we have to defeat the Axis, and then we can take care of these colonizing Englishmen. Uh, so he was... Uh, Mustafa Nachas was was uh, willing to work with the with the British to win the war, uh, which meant we'll hold this little argument between us about you guys getting out of here in abeyance until the war is over. Okay, that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so there's let's see, so there's you know the the position of the like sort of Arab the Arab states. Um, in this whole thing, they're sort of, you know, they're in one way, like, yeah, it's sort of just like their, their geography and their strategic importance because of either resources or their geography related to um, Europe, you know, makes them these sort of 
chess pieces or like risk, you know, uh, the board game risk, just kind of like moving things back and forth. And, and in some ways are, it seems like they didn't have a lot of agency. Um, and then in other ways, some of, yeah, some of the leaders were seeing which side they wanted to take. And then, and some of the, um, Arab leaders, uh, decided to fully embrace, uh, the Axis powers, um, as a way, I guess, both to, you know, go against the colonial, um, the British empire and also, uh, these, uh, pesky Zionists in <laughs> mandatory Palestine who, you know, I have their, you know, have their own ideas of what, what should happen there. And also there's, you know, um, another thing that I guess maybe often, isn't often emphasized, you know, there were a number of, um, of Jews living in Northern Africa at the time and some, you know, hundreds of thousands, um, or more. And their, uh, and once the Axis powers invaded their, you know, their fate suddenly became much more precarious. Um, so how does, yeah, <laughs> do you have any, can you comment on well, that aspect? First of all, I want to say that you're, you're comparing this to a game of risk rather than a game of chess is a, um, is a good comparison, especially a game of risk with a number of players. Mm -hmm. um, there is a tendency when people talk about this to try to reduce it to two sides. But in fact, there's competition going on in all sorts of directions, intrigues upon intrigues, people who are playing multiple uh, parts, sometimes more parts than they know, because they don't know about the other intrigues. Um, so the Arab leaders in, in various countries were in a position of political weakness vis-a-vis -vis European powers. But they sat on territory that was um, incredibly important. You, you mentioned before how many continents this took place, this whole drama takes place in. Well, the Middle East is where Europe and Asia and Africa come together. Mm -hmm. it, you, you, can't, you can't find more strategic territory, which may explain why then, as today, European powers may say they don't want to deal with the Middle East, but can never <laughs> uh, separate themselves from it. That's a theme which which hasn't contained mm -hmm. changed in the intervening eighty years. Is yeah. the strategic importance is too much to let go of, and then you have to deal with with local leaders. So the the British, in particular, are in this position where they want to keep Arab leaders on their side where there are a couple of Arab leaders who are clearly pro axis, but others who are either sitting on the fence or favor the allies. Uh, they want to maintain the support of the half a million Jews in Palestine, but not give those Jews any concessions whatsoever because they're afraid of the Arabs. Um, all of these are parts of that game of, of risk that you're talking about. And then in addition to that, as you mentioned, all the way across North Africa and the Middle East, there were Jewish populations. Uh, there were 75,000 Jews in Egypt. There were 30,000 Jews in Libya. There were, of course, half a million Jews or more in, in Palestine. There were Jews in Syria and Iraq and Persia. And the Axis posed a tremendous threat to all of them. And this comes to its... Uh, extreme at the moment that Rommel invaded Egypt because it, it in, in June uh, in in June 1942 when Rommel came virtually to the gates of Alexandria 
crossed most of Egypt and was very close to conquering the, the major cities along the Nile of Egypt. Because at that moment, the SS in Berlin, confident of Rommel's victory, uh, created an Einsatzkommando, a mobile killing unit that was assigned to Egypt and the Middle East, whose job it was to murder all of the Jews of the Middle East. And the man who was put in charge of this unit, Walter Rauf, had previously been responsible for the mass production of the mobile gas vans that were used to kill half a million Jews in, in Europe. So the plans for the plans and the preparations for carrying out genocide in the Middle East were, were very, very much part of this story. And once again, it's only this uh, very, very uh, narrow victory of the British army in Egypt that pre prevented that from happening. Mm -hmm. um, so if there's a main, I, I was sort of thinking, you know, the anti-protagonist, or I don't, would you call him an antagonist? I don't know. Obviously, he was, he was a Nazi, uh, Rommel. And, and this is sort of, I mean, he's, you could say he's the main character in some respect, or, or at least one of the main uh, themes of the book is debunking a myth of Rommel as both the ultimate, like, um, you know, strategy, strategian, is that a word? You know, strategist, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the genius of desert warfare, the desert fox, and, you know, who had, you know, some supernatural almost ability to, um, you know, succeed. And also, I guess, this idea that, well, he was, you know, he was sort of, uh, was it war without hate? Was that a phrase that was used? It was like, he, he wasn't wrote a committed, memoir that He wasn't committed yeah. to the Nazi project in the way that some of these other Nazis were. He was more like just a ger good German who was serving his, you know, doing the job he was meant to do, and he was really great at it. <laughs> and I guess, so that is sort of maybe the, I, I feel like maybe this maybe more like 30 or 40 years ago, this would have been the idea of Rommel. But um, can you talk about the, how, how well, what we know more about Rommel now? Well, that, that may, despite certain efforts to take, uh, Rommel off his pedestal, that remains a very, very popular image of Rommel, the military genius and the general who intended to serve his country but wasn't a Nazi. So let's first talk about the military genius part. Yeah, and for this, I'll give you a metaphor. You're, imagine you're sitting in this casino watching a, um, or, or sitting in a card hall and you're watching this game of poker and this guy wins three, four or five hands of, of poker that seems to like totally defy the odds and you're saying he's a genius. The other thing that's happening very often is he thinks he's a genius and he thinks the odds don't apply to him. In fact, he's been very, very lucky, but the odds eventually catch up with him. And that kind of compulsive gambler who wins and then thinks the odds don't apply to him, that's a good picture of Rommel. Uh, Rommel had a, a, a serious disregard for a crucial issue of of warfare, which was supplies, logistics, an issue which was even more important in North Africa than elsewhere, because you're talking about desolate land where even the water has to be brought forward by truck to the soldiers. Um, and yet several of his gambles succeeded, which gave him this great confidence and made people around him think that he was an incredible genius. In the, in the final 
part of his advance in North Africa, he had one more advantage. In, in, in a sense, the cards were marked. He was reading the plans of the other side. He was getting this amazing intelligence starting no later than December 1941. For at least six months, he was the secrets of, of British general headquarters in the Middle East were flowing directly to him, which obviously in war as in cards, being able to read the other side's intentions uh, and strengths is, is a tremendous advantage. So the picture of his genius has been inflated. But besides that, he was a man who worshipped Hitler and expressed that, that adulation in, in letters that he wrote to his wife. Um, he was the German general in Libya at a time that the Italians were beginning to send um, Jews to a concentration camp in Western Libya. His yeah, that, staff, that was that was a fact I had never heard before, or if it was told to me, I forgot that there were there was an, was it Italy was running a concentration camp for Jews in um in Libya, and this well, this wasn't a death camp, but this was more a literal getting everyone together, and then like many of them died of like preventable diseases and starvation. Right, right. They they on the one hand they didn't have a uh, a program. Of, of killing the Jews there. But on the other hand, when the Jews in this camp complained about the fact that they had nothing to eat, the commandant told them, we didn't bring you here to keep you alive. Um, it's just, you know, cheaper to starve you than to, than to shoot you. Um, and brutal methods were being used to put down resistance. Classic brutal methods were being used to put down resistance in Libya. And Rama was complicit in all of this. And at the point when the SS created this mobile killing squad and sent its commander to El Alamein in the Egyptian desert to meet with Rommel's staff. The reason he was told that he couldn't go into action yet was not that Rommel objected to this, but simply, you know, we're, we're stuck here. Uh, we don't have uh, the supplies in the trucks to take you forward yet. So wait in Athens, and as soon as, as soon as we win here, you can go into action. Fortunately, Rama lost there, and that didn't happen. But there's no sign that uh, Rama had any problems with the Nazi plans. Yet, when he left North Africa, let's note, after he was defeated in North Africa, he wrote this memoir uh, called War Without Hate. And that became a... Uh, a slogan that was used to describe the war in North Africa. It was only a war without hate if you ignore the presence of civilians there. If you act as if the North Africa is an ocean and you just have fighting ships fighting each other. But that wasn't the case. The town of Benghazi in Libya changed hands five times during the war. Okay, other towns in Libya were destroyed by bombing. Um, the Jews of Libya were sent to a concentration camp. Cairo and Alexandria were bombed. Uh, there were millions of people across the Middle East whose fate was going to be affected by who won in these battles. Uh, and, and the idea of a war without hate treats all of those people as if they were invisible or less. And I think that we're at a stage in the way that we look at history that it's really, really important to um, 
uh, not to go along with that erasing of the effect of this war on the, on the people who actually lived in Africa and in, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so Rommel wrote his memoir after returning to, after leaving the Middle East, um, but the war was still going on. So, this is, I mean, at least we can say this about Rommel, he's sort of an energetic character with lots of, you know, uh, so his, you know, the sort of bursting ahead in the tanks, um, going far ahead of the supply line was one of his techniques, but also he had enough time while the war was still going on. I guess he was ostensibly still a commanding general on the Western Front, or explains this to me, because I, I actually, I didn't even know that he didn't outlive the war, um, and that he took took cyanide, is that what ultimately happened to him? Um, or he was offered either, we're going to kill you, or you take cyanide, because of they thought maybe right. he was involved in the anti-Hitler assassination plot, but actually he probably wasn't? He, uh, first of all, he, uh, he was, his army was defeated in North Africa in May of 1943. He escaped. He returned to to uh, German-controlled territory in Europe. Um, very soon after that, the Allies invaded Sicily, and then uh, in uh, September of, of 1943, the Italian mainland. And the next big assignment that Rama was given was uh, putting together the German occupation of Italy. Uh, to prevent it from falling into Axis hands, which turned all of Italy into into a battleground. Um, right. So Italy, so that, Italy capitulated right to the Allies, but then like Germany declared war on Italy or invaded Italy to Germany occupied Italy uh, immediately after the capitulation. Um, set up a puppet regime under Mussolini, who was now completely controlled by Berlin, and the Allies. You know, had to push their way north through uh, through Italy. Uh, in fact, Rome was liberated by American forces the day before D-Day. Um, another piece of the war that that gets sort of erased in American memory because D-Day came the next day, so all right. the headlines <laughs> switched. But in fact, this was the first Axis capital to fall to right. Allied forces. It was a huge event. Roosevelt yeah. gave a radio speech, you know, one down, two to go, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, the next day sort of overshadowed that. Um, so Rommel was in charge of the German troops who occupied Italy. And then after that, he was assigned to the defense of the Atlantic coast against the expected uh, uh, allied invasion <coughs> invasion of France. Um, <clears throat> excuse me for a second. Sure. And um, very soon after that invasion, his, his strategy for defending the coast, fortunately, was unsuccessful. Uh, he was wounded when a... Um, an Allied airplane shot up his his uh, his command car, um, and he was back at his home resting when the attempted coup against Hitler took place. One of the people who was questioned after that coup by the Gestapo named Rommel as a member of the conspiracy. Uh, secret policemen showed up at Rommel's house. And they told him that he had a choice of committing suicide or of being put on trial. Uh, 
the apparent reason that he was given this choice, unlike other people involved, was that he had been turned into a propaganda figure by the Nazi regime. So it would have been a loss for them as well to say that he was a traitor. They wanted to preserve his image as well. So it said, look, you're going to be dead. You can, <laughs> you know, take cyanide and your wife will get her pension and you'll, your memory will still be heroic. Or you can refuse, in which case we're going to arrest you and you're going to get killed anyway. So he took the suicide choice and uh, died in the in the summer of, of 1944. Um, and that whether he was involved in the conspiracy or not, that's not you know, that wasn't a, a, an essential subject for me. But I can tell you that among German historians, there is a serious debate about whether he was actually involved or whether somebody just, you know, spouted names. Uh -huh. um, but his supposed involvement in that coup, the way that he died at the hands of the Nazi regime, helped to create this myth of him having been a a uh, a good German after the war. Uh -huh. So, is another part of this myth of Rommel related to Bonner's Feller? Is that his name, or is it Bonner Fellers? <laughs> Bonner Fellers. Bonner Fellers. Okay. And and the story they wanted to t the the Allies wanted to tell after the victory, maybe obscuring what actually happened with this man Bonner Fellers. Well, I'm not sure if that's the the thing that they were most interested in obscuring. the The thing that that the British made the most explicit point of covering up, of keeping secret at the end of the war was this tremendous code-breaking uh, feat of, of breaking the Germans' Enigma code. Um, and there is a very explicit order, which I found in the British archives, explaining why everybody who knew the secret had to keep the secret for the rest of their life. In other words, th those people, the, the small number of people who knew the secret, might have felt the war is over, we can talk about it. So in a very explicit order went out in April 1945 on the, on the eve of, of VE Day, in which they were told, you may never speak about this. You must carry the secret for the rest of your lives. And the top reason that was given was that the Germans have to believe that their defeat was entirely on the field of battle by superior arms. Because otherwise, as happened after World War I, they might try again. Right? Remember, this is only, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the Allies now are people who were young men at the end of, of World War I. It's, it's just a few years earlier. So the Germans tried another time. They were afraid the Germans would try a third time. And they didn't want to give them any psychological uh, encouragement by letting them know that, oh, gee, you know, our intelligence helped us win the war. So this order was given that this had to remain a secret. It eventually came out in the 70s in a very distorted form, and it's taken many years in the release of, of, of top secret documents to be able to create a better picture of, of what actually happened. Uh, and then there because, so it was were, because, like, sort of intelligence work and the decoding was maybe seen as sort of an underhanded, ungentlemanly sort right. of way to win victory versus the just combat on the field of battle. And so that would well, possibly it, be a stab, a parallel to the stab in the back myth that, yeah, exactly. It would, be, it would. It might be seen as a parallel to the to the stab in the back myth. It, it might be seen as, oh, it was because of this intelligence screw up, and not because we are inherently weaker than the combined strength of <laughs> of Britain and America that we lost this war. So let's you know do a better job of designing our codes and and go for it again. That was that was the fear in in April May of of nineteen forty five. 
there was another side of the intelligence business which involved what could be called America's overt spy in Cairo. And that was Colonel Bonner Fellers. Colonel Bonner Fellers was the U.S. So his first name military. was Bonner. First name was Bonner. His last name was Fellers. Yeah. <laughs> and he was I, the at, at military attache in Cairo for the U.S. military? Yeah. He was uh, sent there immediately after the Italians invade, first invaded Egypt in 1940. Um, it was an a, a almost impetuous decision uh, by the War Department in, in Washington. Oh, my gosh, we've got to send somebody to to the Middle East to see what's going on there. And he ended up being the American representative on the active front where the British were fighting the Italians and then also the Germans and where they were trying out American weapons. Right. America was, you know, American factories were were turning out new weapons which were being sent to Egypt for the battle. And Bonnerfellers was there to report on everything and to tell Washington what worked and what didn't work and what British tactics were unsuccessful. He was um, no lover of the British, so his his cables uh, were full of criticism of, of how the British were fighting the war, something which um, didn't, you know, took a, a large amount of chutzpah since no American soldiers were at that time fighting the Germans. Right, so this, um, this, this was, you know, before Pearl Harbor and before America entered the war, but uh, the Lend-Lease Act or agreement was such that American, you know, armor material, whatever, was, was being sent to Britain for use. And it was a lot of it was being sent to uh, the, you know, Northern Africa, Middle East theater. Right. It, uh, American uh, tanks, uh, trucks, you may think trucks are important, but again, that supply lines are cr critical in a battle like this. Airplanes, um, all these things were being, uh, guns were all being sent to to Egypt to supply the uh, to supply the British in this battle, and uh, the man on the ground who can tell you, hey, you know what? The air filters on our airplanes are not built to deal with sand, um, and they won't work in the desert. You know these tanks can't stand up to desert conditions. We've got to make alterations in our tanks. But gee, it looks like the armor plating is good, and and you can't fight the way the British did because they're making. Oh, by the way, you know, it's important to have markings of whose tank is whose on the top of the tank, because otherwise, when you fly your airplanes over the battlefield, they can't tell who's our tanks and who's their tanks. All of these pieces of information Bonnerfeller is, is, is sending from Cairo. And, and the British have a weird relationship with him, because on the one hand, they're getting hints that he's just dissing them all over the place saying that they're amateurs and they don't know what they're doing, which, as I said, was sort of insulting because the Americans weren't yet fighting the Germans. And on the other hand, he seemed to have an astounding, an uncanny ability to get British officers to tell him things. And, you know, he, he complains at one point, I, I don't really have an official status that will get people to talk to me. And yet you you look at his cables and they're, <clears throat> they're full of the most amazing top secret information. The cables, by the way, the, the major source I found of the cables was that he had uh, taken home the originals, and there were copies of them in the attic of his post-war house in Washington, D.C. I wow. tracked down his granddaughter. Um, it took a few months to do that, and I managed to get her on the phone. I said, do you have any material from your grandfather? And she said, gee, there's some envelopes in the in the attic. I'll, I'll check that out. And it turned out that they were the 
they were the cables from Cairo. That's that wild. Told, uh, told all of his, uh, contained all of his reports from there. So in a sense, he was an American quite out in the open spying on the British. And there's more to that story. But again, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave that to the readers as they, as they pursue the mystery through the book. Okay, yeah, we won't reveal that. Although you, you, you do talk about his, po his career after the war, which has some sort of twists and turns, which are in a way surprising, but also like he became involved in juvie politics and the John Birch Society and, and other uh, sort of unusual things. Um, yeah, so definitely another character who I never heard his name before reading the book, and, but he will play this very strange key role in the whole thing. Okay. He was... He was one of the people, before he was sent to Egypt, he was one of <clears throat> the last people in America, I, I'm sorry, right before he, he was sent to Spain and then to Egypt, one of his last meetings in America was with Charles Lindbergh. Until he left the United States, he was a dedicated, extreme isolationist. When he got to Egypt and he saw the war and for the first time in his military career, after over 20 years in the military, he was actually seeing the battlefield. He became a big proponent of American involvement, which lasted through the war. And post-war, he astoundingly reverted completely to his isolate, extreme right-wing isolationist opinions and for years ran a lobbying group against foreign aid. <laughs> and, and as you said, became a supporter of the John Birch Society. It really, really fascinating character. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, yeah, I, I, let's mention this uh, person who I alluded to earlier. So Laszlo Almazi, or I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Can you talk about this figure who, as maybe people know him through his fictionalization and the English patient uh, book and movie? Right. So Almazi was a Hungarian explorer. As you said, there's a highly fictionalized version of him, um, that appears in um, in the English patient. In fact, he actually did go from Hungary to Egypt and become one of the two top explorers of the virtually unknown country of of the of the Libyan desert of the Great Desert uh, west of the Nile River. Uh, in, and then when the war started. He returned to Hungary, eventually was seconded by the Hungarian army to the German army, and uh, was sent to North Africa. And his goals included smuggling German spies into Cairo. And one of his most spectacular cross-desert journeys was, in fact, successfully smuggling two German spies into Cairo. Uh, their story has also been told in a number of books, some of which claim to be nonfiction. Um, a whole myth was created around them. The actual story of their capture remained secret for over 60 years in the files of, of MI5, the British Counterintelligence Agency. Um, and those files tell a completely different story than, than the myth of the spies that Almasi brought into to Egypt. Yeah, so I I was not familiar. I, I so I had never read or seen the English Patient, but of course knew it from, as being a huge thing. And so Ray Fiennes is the very fictionalized version of this real life historical figure in, in the movie. Um, 
And yeah, I didn't know the story of these two German spies who, I guess, uh, after the war wrote memoirs or, or something and, and told their their own version of this that made them seem like they had more influence than probably they did in real life or much more influence than they did in real life. Um, and yeah, so that so and then, yeah, so how, is that they show up in the English patient? OK, the the British major who claimed to have caught them. I underline the word "claimed" shows up in the English patient. Um, Alma, uh, yeah, obviously, Almasi does. Um, it, all of these accounts, the, the fictionalized accounts, were based on on these post-war stories that were published, which um, included a memoir by one of the spies, a, a memoir by the uh, British major who claimed to have captured them. Uh, here and there, in those stories they occasionally accidentally run into uh, historical facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they as you describe it, they sort of had, it seemed like they had a fun time for themselves, um, you know, dur- in Cairo during the war. And, um, but their effectiveness in aiding, <laughs> aiding the German, you know, war effort uh, it seems to be basically nil, but um, okay. So, le- so another sort of theme or a minor theme in the, in the book seems to me like, you're also sort of uh, doing some revisionist history on the Israeli or Zionist narrative of World War II. And so, um, like, what was the role, you know, the, it's, it's super complicated. And I, I basically didn't know almost any of this story about, you know, the, the Jews who were living in Palestine, some of them want, wanted to enlist in the British army to fight. And then there were sort of um, a, like, militias that were trained and stuff because they they thought that and there was some bombing of like Haifa and other areas during the war but they thought that if Rommel succeeded you know he's gonna he's gonna come into Palestine and then so you needed like a defense for a defense force in addition to the Australians and um, other New Zealanders who were being brought in um, as part of the the British army and so so in so, so you have some you know there, there are Men who became major figures in Israel, like Moshe Dayan and uh, Yitzhak Rabin, have small cameos in this as what what they were doing during during the war. But I, but I guess maybe in Israel there's more of a myth making about okay, what was happening so, all this time. So for a period of two years, there was an ever present danger of the Nazis reaching Palestine. Now. The Jews in Palestine did not yet know fully what that meant because nobody had a clear picture of what was going on uh, in Eastern Europe. In fact, when the first reports came out of mass murder, um, for instance, I found an editorial in a Hebrew newspaper from from Tel Aviv saying, you know, people shouldn't be reporting this stuff. It's obviously an exaggeration and it just causes panic. Uh, So they didn't know precisely what it meant, but they knew that Nazis were bad news. Um, and that it would be bad to fall into German hands. So even though by 1939, the Jewish community in Palestine really wanted to see the British go, the vast majority of people, uh, all but a a really handful of people, decided, look, we have to work with the British to defeat the Nazis before we can turn to to getting rid of the British. The sort of parallel here to what was going on in in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Um, Egyptians and the Israelis may have fought afterwards, but they had the same attitude at the time. Let's get rid of the Nazis and then we can fight each other, you know, without that hanging over our head. Um, Right. And there's also a parallel because 
both Nasser and Sadat make cameo appearances as young men in the Egyptian military, you know, playing small roles uh, during the um, dur- during the story you tell. So it it, it is yeah. yes, it it's, it's, it's almost amazing. like a prequel. Like it's like, do you think of this book it's as possible? Definitely like, the prequel to the to the prequel the, to 1948. It's the prequel to 1948. It's really the prequel to the whole Arab-Israeli conflict. Is what happened uh, during World War II, which I describe in War of Shadows it, in. Palestine, the big debate in the Jewish community was, should we far- create our, you know, should our young people uh, it, sign up for our own underground forces, which will be here to uh, deal with the Germans, even if only as partisan groups, if the Germans invade, or should we join the, the, um, the British army? The mainstream opinion was that the overwhelming number joined uh, the British army, and there was a very powerful campaign in the Jewish community to join the British military, uh, sometimes much more than the British themselves wanted because they were a little bit worried about training these Jews how to use guns. Um, uh, but the smaller number created these these undergrounds, including what became very famous afterwards, the Palmach, which was what the young Yitzhak Rabin belonged to, for instance, the young Moshe Dayan originally belonged to. Um, and Israeli mythology puts a great stress on those undergrounds because later in 1948, they were the core of the what became the Israeli army. During the war itself, they played an incredibly minor role, if any. The, one of the British secret agencies, something known as the, secret op, the Special Operations Executive, which was responsible for training resistance movements, actually helped train the Palmach. Um, one 90-year-old, then 90-year-old uh, ex-Palmach man explained to me how in the SOE camp, he learned how to make um, a time delay fuse, for instance, you know, to blow things up. Something that post-war he used to blow up a British radar station. Um, but um, they never actually went into action because the Germans did not reach Palestine. So in that sense, the mythology puts a great stress on a group which played a incredibly marginal role. Uh, The reality is that the borders of the Holocaust were set by where allied armies stopped the Nazis. And that can be said to be on three fronts. The British managed to prevent a German invasion of Britain. Therefore, Britain was a refuge. Uh, Where the Soviet army eventually stopped the German army in Russia, that's the line between genocide and safety. And in North Africa, the Battle of El Alamein, where the Germans were stopped in Egypt, was the outer limit of German power. And that battle is what prevented a Holocaust in the Middle East. It was um, soldiers from South Africa and India and Britain and Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere who stopped that, that German invasion and uh, prevented a, a Holocaust in, in the Middle East. Um, in fact, after the book came out, I got a letter from a man whose father had uh, extremely moving email from a man whose father had been in the New Zealand second division in the Middle East. And he said, you know, this is the first that we've known that, uh, 
know, you've you've given a different meaning to to my father's you know battles that, mm-hmm. that they prevented this genocide, um, which really you know really touched me to, to get to get that note. Um, what is true is that the decision of the Jews in Palestine to fight on the British side meant that somewhere in the area of 25 to 30,000 Palestinian Jews received uh, military training and experience uh, during the war. And on the other hand, the political forces, especially within the Egyptian army, especially from young men like Sadat and Nasser, against fighting on the Allied side, meant that the Egyptian army finished the war with virtually no battlefield experience. And in 1948, if you look at Nasser's own writings about the 1948 war and, and the, the writings of, of uh, other young officers like him, when they invaded Palestine in May of 1948, they thought, you know, we're trained soldiers with a real army and we're just fighting these, you know, these gangs, they called them, of, of, of Zionists. And they were defeated. Um, and what happened was, a, a large part of what happened there was, the amateurs turned out to be the Egyptians. They had no war experience. They had not had the brutal training uh, the brutal schooling of World War II, and those uh, those Jews in Palestine were much more prepared to fight a real war. So, in that sense, again, this was what happened during the war was the prequel to the entire development of the Arab-Israeli conflict afterwards. And I think that without seeing what happened between 1940 and 1945, particularly between 1940 and 1943 in the Middle East. Um, you really can't understand what happened afterwards. Yeah, that was a, a, a very interesting conclusion um, of yours that I had never heard before. And yeah, that, I mean, the fact that, yeah, I guess Egypt essentially outsourced its, you know, they were, they were like, well, the, the British will just do this for us. And, and for King Farouk was sort of trying to play both sides or something, or but also spending time romancing women and gambling and stuff. So it was, yeah, they were sort of, in a way, sat out, and because the the um, you know the 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 Nazi push was stopped at El Alamein, you know um, the Egyptian military was never truly tested, and and yeah, as you as you note, the you know the um, the mobile killing vehicles were like ready to go, um, uh, led by this German guy who eventually escaped to South America and lived out his life and uh, was never. Uh, captured or prosecuted uh is ralph is his name roof um walter ralph okay who yeah so if things had gone differently you know the the world <laughs> the world would be different in many ways but one of them would be uh, uh many more jews would have been killed um in the holocaust or a second holocaust would have happened in the middle east um so as i think i mean i we've talked we've mentioned a lot of things that have gone up that you talk about in this book i feel like there's a, you know you can have a whole another conversation on different topics, like I said, there's a lot here. It really is sort of a comprehensive look at, you know, a part that in American culture is elided or semi-forgotten. Um, is there anything, maybe we should start wrapping things up. Is there anything else you want to say about about the book? I, I, well, I feel like we've given enough that people who are interested in this will, will want to check it out. 
Well, what I'd like to say is we've talked about a lot of different subjects here, but the core of this book is a story, um, a story about people. Uh, it's a spy story. It's a story about the mystery of of who is supplying the access with their information and the, and the search for that source. Um, and if you are interested in the Middle East, but also simply if you're interested in a mystery and a spy story, this is one which happens to be true. <laughs> it's, um, I, you know, every, every detail here is, is attested to by the sources and the story is told according to those sources, but it's a real story of, of how spying changed the, uh, the outcome of the war changed the lives of millions of people, and uh, and then the secret was buried. And what I've tried to do is bring that story to the surface and uh, to give the heroes of that story their proper due. And uh, and I hope people enjoy reading it. Um. That's a good place to end it. Yeah. So check it out. War of Shadows. Once again, um, you will, I, I, I guarantee you will learn things you didn't know before about World War II, um, even if you are a uh, history buff or something like that uh, from, from this book, because like we mentioned, you uncover the uh, biographies and actions of people who are totally forgotten by, uh, by history. Um, okay. Gershom, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for the book. Uh, um, you do you want to anything else you want to mention your Twitter or uh, website or, or anything like that? Oh, you can you can find me on Twitter at Gershom G G E R S H O M G. Uh, and uh, book War of Shadows is available in all the usual websites. Yes, wherever fine books are sold, and uh, I'm on Twitter at. R-E-A-C-W, A-R-Y-A-H-C-W. And, uh, okay, so, so th thank you, Gershom. Thank you to our viewers and listeners, uh, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.